Mark, why don't you come up here? A bit hot. There we go. Well, we took a big risk. It was um, a couple Sundays ago we decided to let Mark Myers read the scripture text before the sermon, and we thought he would crash and burn and the church would empty and several people would renounce their faith. That was my fear. John and I stayed up all night praying the first time he read the word. And, uh, well, it was a shock. It was a true shock. It was so good that um, I thought we need to change his name. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I present to you Mark Golden Voice Myers. We need to turn him on. John 11. Did you hear that? Could you just do that again? John 11. John 11. Oh. <laughs> Preach it. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live 
even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who was to come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was 
should report it so that they might arrest him. Thank you. Excellent. Isn't it good to hear the whole passage read? Now we have a context for the things we're going to look at in this story that really stand out. Thank you. It's, it's a little short, but thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I'll, I'll lean against it. All right. We're going we're gonna to pick out some key points in this story. I'm not going to try to do the whole story, but we're going to work our way through it and make some observations that apply to us today. Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, and he says this sickness is not going to end in death. It is, quote, for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, you've heard people say Jesus never claimed to be God. But here's another one of these instances where he is clearly saying who he is. If I heal him, which he is going to do, God is going to be glorified because God's son is going to be glorified. He's making this statement of unity between himself and his father. Now, it's interesting, although he loves Lazarus and his sisters, he waits two days before leaving to go to the family. And after two days, he tells his disciples this. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. See, he's already prophesied the resurrection. He's already said this sickness is not going to end in death. But now he's giving us the reason why this sickness is not going to end in death. And that reason is simple. That they may believe. Now this is interesting. Think about this. Here he is stalling a healing. (laughs) So it won't be a healing. It'll be a resurrection from the dead. So that they may believe. Did they already believe? How long have they been with him at this point? Two and a half to three years. And what miracles have they seen in the time they've been with him? Water into wine. That's pretty significant. Feeding 5,000 people from a few fish and some bread. Two days, three days before this incident, a man born blind from birth. Walking on the water. And yet, he's saying, you need to see this so that you might believe. What is this suggesting to us? Believing is a matter of degree. We all start out with God with just enough belief to follow him. Just enough belief to get to heaven. But his intention is that throughout our life with him, we are going to grow in belief. And he's committed to us growing in faith. The faith that it takes to get saved is, in Jesus' words, puny. Remember they couldn't cast out the demon and and he said, you people have puny faith. You've got enough faith to get saved, but you don't really understand the fullness of what I'm capable of. You don't understand my my plans for you. You don't understand my kingdom. You don't get it. And until you get it and understand and have belief for it, you're not going to really enter into it. Now, this is intimidating, isn't it? Because right away, 
if we're, if we're courageous, we'll say to ourselves, well, I wonder how much faith I have. And if we're honest, we'll say, not as much as I could have, not as much as I will have when Jesus is finished with me. The key faith in your life isn't just the faith for salvation. It's the faith for the kingdom of God in your life now. And that can always increase. It can always increase. And it also raises a question about how we usually think about belief and miracles. Here's what we usually think. Our faith causes miracles. If you want to see God do something powerful, you've got to have faith for it. Is that not how we usually think? All right. And it's true. Faith is one of the principal ways in which God intervenes in our creation. It's one of the principal ways he comes in and violates his laws of nature to bring about his supernatural kingdom on earth. Faith is one of the keys. But we see it that way so often we don't realize this. In this story, he's reversing our understanding. He's saying, I'm going to wait until he's dead to raise him from the dead so that you can believe. In this story, he's saying experiencing miracles causes faith. We usually say faith causes miracles. No, it also works the other way around. Experiencing the power of God leads to greater belief in the power of God. And sometimes we need a miracle in our life so that we can step up and believe for more. In fact, we always need a miracle from God in our life so we can believe for more. By definition, he's infinite in his power, and so therefore we are in a growth curve that continues to go up until the moment we face him in heaven. And faith is no longer an issue, it's a reality. Okay. Why do we need more miracles to have more faith? Our human nature creates a problem for our faith. We are people stuck in time, and we are focused on our present circumstances to define the level of our faith. Hello? If you've just experienced a miracle of God this week, your faith is extremely high for miracles from God. If it has been 25 or 30 years since you've seen God do something supernatural in your life, you have been living in a present dearth a present drought of the supernatural nature of God. And so you are going to live in the present and you're going to define your level of faith very, very low. We tend to forget what God has done for us in the past. And so over time, our faith decreases. Is there anyone in the room who will cop to that with me? Are we not creatures stuck in time? And don't we define We define the goodness of God by what have you done for me lately? You know, I've seen four blind people healed. I've got a lot of faith for blindness. I haven't seen many people with cancer healed. I have a very low faith for healing for cancer. That's how specific our faith can be to our experience. And the sad fact is that our level of faith decreases over time. But here's the good news. It can be renewed every time we see his power displayed once again. Your faith level will just pop right up to what you just experienced. 
of him. And this is what Jesus is doing for his disciples. He's giving them a lesson in faith. So he waits until John, until Lazarus is not just dead, but to be crude, good and dead. Now, John mentions the fact of Lazarus being dead for four days. Now, you may not know the reason why this four days is significant, but this is the good and dead significance. It was a common Jewish belief at the time that a dead person's soul stayed around hovering near the body for three days in the hope that it could be returned to its body. That was their belief. Now, uh, isn't that interesting? Three days in the grave. Now, four days means there's no hope. The soul's already left. You can't hang for more than three days. And this guy is truly dead and there is no hope. The situation is beyond all hope. Now, isn't this consistent with God's usual means of doing miracles? Have you ever found in your life that he, I know, me too, drives me crazy. He seems to act when hope is gone. He waits until your circumstances are beyond all human hope. He does this to make it clear to every witness that they're seeing a genuine miracle. That had to be God. There was no hope. Sad fact, our faith for supernatural power grows best when his supernatural power is the only possible explanation for what we experience. And it also explains God's sense of timing. Often the answer to prayer comes at the last possible moment by God's design. Look, guys, this should, be, this should be stirring up hope. This should be giving you a little sense of relief. Oh, he hasn't acted yet. I've been praying for two years over this. He hasn't acted yet. Maybe my circumstances are good and dead. Ah, maybe I've, hey, I've given up hope. Now he can act. I got him where I want him. I've, manip I've manipulated the big guy into a corner of outer space in the heavens. My hope is gone. I dare you to change my mind. No, I double dog dare And dog is God spelled backwards. I double dog dare you to change my mind, to show me who you really are. I got one friend, you know, all those like uh, uh, the Hebrew names of God, El Shaddai, Raphim, blah, 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 you know. My friend says one of his names should be El Nico Time. Because <laughs> he always seems to come right at the last possible moment before complete destruction seems to happen. But look at Shouldn't that give you some hope in what you're praying for? Shouldn't it? Don't give up asking. Don't give up believing. Because he usually waits till the darkest hour. Because the darkest hour is the most convincing moment for us to experience his goodness. Just in the nick of time. On with the story. Jesus arrives, and Martha greets him and says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. This is really interesting about this levels of faith thing. Martha has faith for healing if he's here. Get it? If you'd have been here, I know you could have done something about that. She has faith for healing because she's seen him do it. But she hasn't seen him resurrect anyone from the dead. She has faith for healing, but she doesn't have faith for resurrection from the dead. And Jesus said to her, no, no, your brother will rise again. And she gets theological on him. She gets theological on him because when the facts are arguing against us in our human moment in time where, where the worst thing has just happened, and he says something like, oh, it'll be all right, we go, yeah, it'll be all right in heaven. And that's what she says. Oh, I know he'll rise in the resurrection at the last day. See, she's got faith for heaven. Hello, salvation. But she doesn't have faith for the kingdom of God right now. She has some faith for a physical healing. If you'd have been here, it would have happened. But you're in here. It didn't happen. And so we're just going to have to wait till heaven. That's not what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about something right now. He's talking about heaven on earth. See, we got faith for heaven. We don't have faith for heaven on earth. They had faith for heaven. They didn't have faith for heaven on earth. And Jesus corrects her and says, Noah. He says, I'm the resurrection. You're putting your hope in a resurrection that's going to come. The resurrection has come. It's here right now. The resurrection is talking to you. If that isn't powerful, I don't know what is. You're looking at the resurrection. And you're looking at the life. And because I'm the resurrection and the life, I can give life and resurrection to any dead person. I should choose to do so. And he says, the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now he's talking about later. Do you believe this? She replied, I believe that you're the Messiah. Do you believe this? And she gets theological again. Well, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world according to our Hebrew prophecy. I don't know if she believes he can resurrect her brother from the dead or not. You know what? She probably doesn't know what she believes on this either. He's agreeing with her understanding of who he is and his promise, but it's still unclear about the miracle he's saying he's going to do. Well, she gets off the hook. Because Jesus says, I'd like to speak with Mary. And Martha goes and gets Mary. And Mary goes and finds Jesus. And I just think this is so human. She repeats word for word what Martha said when she first saw Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. You know, I'll bet you they'd said that to each other about 30 to 40 to 50 to 60, maybe 100 times it's from the day they called Jesus and said, you've got to come. You know, if he can just get here in time, if he can just get here in time, it's going to be okay. You know, and then, of course, it doesn't, and he dies, and he's, he's been there for four days. And, well, if Jesus had been here, it would have been okay. Yeah, well, they're sharing. That's right. They're sharing their unbelief. This is beyond hope. And we, we, can, we're not, we shouldn't be down on these people. 
from everything they know and understand, it is beyond hope. He's dead. He's been dead four days. The spirit is left. It's gone. He's dead. It's over. Again, Mary has faith for healing if he's present, but not for a miracle like a resurrection from the dead. Her faith is about to grow too. And now this is the moment I like best about this story, what happens next. Because to a type A personality, results-oriented and driven, which we often are, this part doesn't make any sense at all. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Where have they laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied, and he cried. He just started to cry. The word used for deeply moved in spirit here comes from the word that means to snort with anger. It means to be very angry with indignation like this should not have happened. This is wrong. This is wrong. It's what you were talking about. Um, William Branham? When the John G. Lake, when, when enough of his kids had died to sick brothers and sisters had died, that he finally got angry and said, this is wrong. This is wrong. And that's when his faith came. And what Jesus is doing here, this word for deeply troubled, it's a righteous anger and indignation at the deepest level of a person's emotions. And it says he was troubled. And this means Deep emotional turmoil. It is the same word used a chapter later in John 12 when he's talking about his own death. This situation grieves him as deeply as his realization that he is going to die and be separated from God's love on the cross. That's how deeply troubled he was by Lazarus' death. But this doesn't make any sense because he's just about to resurrect him from the dead. So why is he bothering to feel all this pain? He's about to turn their greatest suffering into their greatest joy. And he knows he's going to do it because he prophesied four days earlier that he would. And he stops in this moment and he breaks down and cries. What's he doing? People, what's he doing? He is sharing their pain with them. Why? Isn't he just the great problem solver? Isn't he just here to solve your problems and get you saved and get you to heaven? To be glorified because he's so amazingly powerful. Isn't that why he does what he does? The answer is, to why he enters into their pain has to do with the relational nature of our faith. And this is the part most of us miss most of the time. Because we live in a, in a world where your worth and your identity is what you do and your productivity measures your worth and our life is a program of unending works and effort and accomplishment. God is not just interested in establishing his kingdom on earth. He is interested in having a relationship with each one of his children. And as John pointed out last week, a good leader cares 
about those he leads. And he truly cares about them. And Jesus is not content to just solve their problem. He wants to share their problems with them. Jesus is not just interested in solving your problems. He wants to share your problems with you. And his promise, I will never leave or forsake you, is the greatest promise you have because some problems don't have solutions. They just have someone to share it with. And he's the one you can share it with always. God identifies so deeply with you that he shares your pain with you before and while he is healing you. I went through an extremely dark time where everything in my life went wrong. It lasted for several years. And I went into a depression. And God ultimately vindicated us and set our feet back on a rock. But when I think back to those times and what I learned in that time, the greatest thing I have from that time is not the amazing way he solved our problems. He did. He really worked some miracles, literally. It's the way he became my friend during the pain that I've never lost. The word friend took on an entirely new meaning through that time, and that's never left me. Sometimes I think I'm disrespectful to him because I know I'm supposed to call him master and I know I'm supposed to call him Lord and I know I'm supposed to, I don't know. But I can't help but call him friend because that's who he became for me in that time. And Jesus himself said, I'm not calling you servants. I'm calling you my friends. Friends don't just solve your problems. Friends share your problems with you. And sometimes the greatest measure of their friendship is not that they signed a check for $20,000 or $100,000. It's that they were with you in your brokenness and your fear and they never left. He's interested in a relationship with you, not just solving your problems. He feels what you feel. He feels what you feel. And you are never alone in your pain or your loss. And if you feel alone in your pain, it's because you haven't found him in it yet. But he is there. One of the names for God I would like to add to the Hebrew list is the God you can find in pain. Because sometimes he's the only thing you can find in pain until he ends the pain. Jesus did miracles then and and he does them now to accomplish three things. Number one, 
to solve our human problems simply because he cares. He does it out of love. Number two, he does miracles in our life to increase our faith in God so we can grow in our understanding of his goodness and trust him more. So we can know him more deeply. So we can experience more of his love and his power for ourselves and for others. Number three. He does miracles in our life to bring those who do not know him into a relationship with him. So that they can know him now. And continue to have a relationship with him for eternity. Listen, whether your miracle happens now or later or even not at all, he is present with you in whatever you're going through. And he is the God who can be found and he feels your pain. And you are never alone. Let's just close our eyes for a minute. And let's let's invite him into our present moment. Close your eyes. What are you going through? What's your unanswered question right now? What's your unanswered prayer? What's your greatest uncertainty in the present and the future? What are you worried about? Get in touch with that. That worry, that fear, that unanswered prayer, the present circumstance. Don't run from it. Let it rise up. And just see it for what it is. What are you afraid of? What's your worry for the future? What's your anxiety in the present? What are you feeling right now? Now he's sitting right beside you. Right now. right beside you right now. What does he say to you right now? What's he saying? What's he do? 
Let's share them together right now, okay? What did he say to you? Just share it out loud as loud as you can so we can all hear it. But this is a form of worship. I love you and I am your friend. I know all your problems and I'm bigger than all of them. Hold my hand and I'll walk with you. What else did he say? (laughs) Don't worry about that. Keep your eyes on the prize. I'll never leave you. Don't waste your time worrying about it. What else? I'll show you what you what to do. What else? Hmm? If you believe this, it changes everything. What else? <laughs> believe that you deserve my peace. What else? everything we've just said, every one of your comments is is a paraphrase of scripture. Everything we've said so far comes right out of the Bible. How do you feel right now? You brought your anxiety to him and you spoke it out loud and there it was. And then for most of us, I think we sense his presence. Now how do you feel right now? What do you feel? Do you feel peace? Do you feel rest? Come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Good, good father.